Welcome to State House Soundbites, WITF's Pennsylvania Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Meyer, State Capitol Bureau Chief for WITF. You can hear my reports on public radio stations around the state. And with me today, well, first, it's Friday. It is right before Christmas, December 22nd. We're in Little Lamps Coffee Shop. And very kindly joining me on their days off are Angela Columbus of uh, the, the Philly Inquirer and Liz Navratil of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. You guys have had a busy couple of weeks, yeah? That's very correct. <laughs> very true. It's a good thing we're in a coffee shop. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for anyone who's missed it, Angela and Liz and a couple other reporters have been working on a, a couple of stories that have come out already on uh, sexual harassment in the legislature. Uh, you've uncovered some pretty significant things. Uh, there have been calls for lawmakers to step down over this stuff. So we're just going to talk about you know, the process of reporting, the stuff you have to be careful about in reporting these things. Obviously, there's going to be fallout from stuff like this, so how that all gets handled and you know, why these are important stories to be telling. Um, so I guess first, when did you guys start looking into this stuff? It's been at least, um, at least I would say, over a month ago. Um, I should probably preface this by saying, um, I believe it was in late, maybe October, um, I wrote a first-person column in the Inquirer about um, not so much sexual harassment in the Capitol, but more about the culture, this male-dominated culture in the Capitol. Um, and in it, you know, we... I talked about some instances where lawmakers were, you know, felt like they could treat a female reporter a bit differently than I think um, they would a male reporter. That column, um, and after that column appeared, I, I literally went into hiding for like three days because I was getting a lot of phone calls. Some, most of them were good, but some of them were, you know, along the lines of, well, you'd need to put on your big girl panties and, and get over it. And it's like I felt like people had missed that point. But because of that, I think it was read fairly widely by people in the Capitol. And we started getting phone calls from women who said, listen, I'm really glad you wrote that because, you know, the, the culture in there is a problem. And let me tell you my story. So it kind of began along those lines. Um, and then throughout, you know, the, I'd say maybe the last couple of weeks, Liz and I have been getting emails from people. Uh, and and you, what you're seeing is that there are women who want to share their stories. Yeah. And sometimes they feel very constrained to do that. I mean, especially if you're talking about an experience with a lawmaker or another elected official who's in a position of power, has influence in the community. And I think Angela and I talked really early on when she was working on the column about how, you know, there are a lot of female reporters who have these sort of weird interactions with people. And if we're seeing that as reporters, where people presumably have this assumption that you could write about something, then what are the other women yeah, experiencing? Right. So you started, you got these emails, you got these phone calls, started doing the reporting on it. Um, the first story that came out then was on Democratic Senator Dalen Leach, just right. a, a well-known progressive, probably one of the top known Democrats in the state. Uh, he's, you know, done a lot of stuff on women's issues, yes. that sort of a thing. You know, that's sort of, that's his entire brand. Yes. But what did you, I mean, what did you hear about him that made you want to do the story? Um, that story took weeks to, to report, um, and it, it was a, definitely a process. But what it boiled down to is that we um, talked to women and men um, who worked for him either on, the, on his various campaigns or um, in the legislature who basically described um, an app, a very 
loose and in some cases sort of hostile atmosphere within the workplace where Dalen is um, Dalen Leach is known for his uh, he's made he's a, used to be an amateur comedian so he kind of he's a guy who jokes often and his jokes are quite often body um, and but I think there were a lot of women who felt that his jokes crossed the line from body into completely inappropriate territory where sexual acts were being discussed um, and they felt very uncomfortable and we're talking not we're talking about women who are just entering the workforce they're in their early 20s this is their first experience in, in many cases in, in in having a job and they don't know how to deal with this. And when you're on a campaign in particular and you're working on a campaign, there's no HR department. It is um, literally a, an entity that exists for six months or a year, however long you know, you're running for office. And there's nobody that you can really report these things to. So we, we did also talk to two women who said that he um, touched them inappropriately. Um, one was a campaign staffer and one was a legislative staffer, um, a former Senate staffer who yeah. has since left. And these were instances where he would like put his hands on their thighs, that sort of thing? Yes, or come up behind, in the instance of the Senate staffer, staffer came up behind her and grabbed her torso and started tickling her. Um, this is after another encounter he had had with her at a Harrisburg bar. So... I mean, you know, this comes out. There's immediate calls for Leach to resign from the governor, from, you know, a lot of Republicans, as you'd expect, and also a lot of Democrats. Um, Leach has been really sort of denying the whole thing, right? Is that the sense that you've gotten from him? I mean, his first statement that he put out was sort of saying, this didn't happen. The second one was a little bit more contrite, saying, all right, Right. I'm sorry if somebody was uncomfortable, but I don't think I did anything wrong. Um, Is that the response you expect from something like this? You know, I, you know, I don't know. There, I, I've spoken to like crisis communication types who say that they've sort of felt his response was the textbook of how not to deal with these types of things. Um, his initial response was in writing. He declined to be interviewed by the paper, um, and his initial response, it, he said, "Look, I acknowledge that I, you know, engage in body humor, but I've never, you know, touched anybody sexually." Uh, inappropriately, consciously, or unconsciously. And then later in the statement, he also said, well, I remember one instance and the other not at all. So it was kind of a statement that was everywhere and and nowhere all all, all at once. There were definitely, like, that line that you mentioned, you know, I remember, but I don't remember, but I deny, it makes it, um, it leaves a lot of doors open for interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would I think at this point, too, he's going through his lawyer, pretty much, right? He is, and um, on social media, he engaged in some really um, back and forth with some really heated language with a woman who had accused him of acting inappropriately in front of her. Those comments have since been deleted off his Facebook page, but I should say, and anybody who's read the comments will see that he does have a lot of support um, among women, among men, among people in the medical marijuana community who have said that he's done like amazing things, including ushering the medical marijuana legalization bill through. So, you know, there is a lot of uh, support for him out there. Yeah. And uh, I think this is kind of an interesting question that comes up when something like this happens, especially when it's a prominent person who's been on the forefront of certain issues like right. Dale and Leach. Uh, 
you know, there's a question people have of should but there be a zero tolerance thing and he steps down or, you know, he's, is he doing more good than harm if he's in office? I mean, obviously, that's not necessarily a yeah. question that you guys have going into this, but, uh, I mean, it, it must be something you think about when you're writing a piece like this. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely aware that people are going to ask those questions. Yeah, I guess that's um, it, It's not lost on us that these kinds of conversations are going to come up when you're doing a story like that. But I think at the end of the day, those are really questions that the leaders and ultimately the voters are the ones who get to decide. Um, if we look on the House side, pretty much everyone's up for re-election next year. If we look at the Senate, there are going to be quite a few on that end. Yeah. Um, Dalen has a congressional campaign, although he said he was taking a step back. Right. Not sure exactly what that means. Right. Nobody knows. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of the Dalen Leach situation. Now, the second story that you guys had come out uh, a little bit later um, this week was, uh, I think, something that sort of pointed a finger at maybe a structural thing that's happening in the House. Um, this was a long, long, long-time representative, Thomas Calderon. Uh, he's what on his like 21st term right now. That's yeah. right. He's been around for 40 years. 40-year lawmaker. Uh, what's he been up to? Well, um, he. Uh, what we reported was that there was a uh, secret payout in early 2015. Um, of, of nearly a quarter million dollars to settle a sexual harassment complaint against him. And that's a single complaint, quarter it is a million dollars. Single complaint. That would be yes. taxpayer money, wasn't it, from the insurance fund that it got paid out? Yes. Liz, yes. you want to take that one? It's a sort of wonky setup. Essentially, while we were working on this, we learned that um, they have an insurance plan that all of the different caucuses and the executive branch pay into. Um, and that covers anything where the state is liable. So it could cover everything from sexual harassment to, like, damage to somebody's private vehicle. But ultimately, like, the caucuses or the executive branch or whoever is getting this policy gets to choose where the money came from. So we know in this case it ultimately was traced back to taxpayer money. Okay. So quarter million dollars to settle a harassment complaint. We don't know a lot about what the complaint was, right? Right. Um, Why is that? There is a confidentiality clause in there. Um, however, I was really interested to see that in the documentation that does exist, and, and there may be more, and obviously we haven't seen everything, but in every single piece of documentation that exists, I never saw the name of the accused. I just saw the name of the victim. Um, and we have chosen as two newspapers to withhold her name because the case involves um, you, you put both physical and verbal um, allegations of, of, you know, physical and verbal um, harassment. So we, we decided not to put her name out there. But And this was a staffer? This was a former legislative staffer of his in his district, in his office. district office. And yeah. we know that prior to that, there was another allegation involving a different staffer in his district office. This would have been the 1990s. Right. Yeah. Yes, this right. was in the 1990s. Um, and that was a case that ended up being investigated by a grand jury. The grand jury wanted charges, and the attorney general, multiple of them, decided not to because they weren't confident they could get a conviction. So we know there have been multiple allegations at various points, um, none of which have ever resulted in charges, um, and a lot of this, the details are very closely wrapped. Yeah. Um, the second allegation, we do know a couple things about that. It, it really involved him like exposing himself to this woman and also pulling a gun at some point. 
Yeah, this was the first one in the 1990s. The first one in the 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That, um, the way it was described in the newspapers at the time is that uh, the two of them went on an out-of-town trip, and they stopped at a brother's house, and he went into the house. When he didn't come back after some time, I think it was about 15 minutes, um, she went into the house and said that she found him lying naked. And so she said she ran from the house, and he followed and that's when she said he pulled out a gun while he was trying to get her to get into a car so he has obviously stayed in office past that um he won his uh, 21st term after the 2015 incident which was covered by a non-disclosure agreement which is why no one knew about it so um what's his response been to all this he put out a response uh, maybe a day after the, the story initially ran in which he said um, that he is not resigning, um, that he is innocent, um, that he wished he could um, talk about it, but he can't, um, even though I, I guess because there is a non-disclosure agreement, and um, that he wished that he could have taken this case to court, and he also talked about all of the great things that he's done legislatively. Including free tampons for female prisoners, I believe, yes. was on the list. Yes, right. Well, that just gets you out of any trouble. Um, <laughs> so I'm innocent, even though we paid a quarter right. million dollars to hush this up. Yeah, and we don't yeah. know what all the terms of the settlement were. Often when they do these settlements, they'll put in some clause that says, like, we're not taking liability, but here's money. And we just do not have access to the full... Yeah, we don't know if he, you know, agreed that, yes, this happened, or if he just said, you know, I would prefer to settle this in order to save the taxpayers more money from, like, prolonged legal proceedings. We, we just don't know. Right. So, anyway, this kind of brings up an interesting question. Of, yeah. You know, these settlements are clearly happening, yeah. at least from the House Democrats' side, right. maybe more widely. Um, but... Uh, so it's spent it's about six hundred thousand yeah. dollars that was spent on these since two thousand seven. Yeah, and these are general workplace harassment. Right. So uh, it was like two wrongful firings, yes. two harassment things. Right. So uh, yeah. So that's. I mean, why is that allowed to happen? I suppose that's the question that we're asking now. I guess it's the same question some yeah. other officials are asking yeah. right now. Yeah. If we're being honest about it. Yeah. Yeah, there's lawmakers who have introduced legislation to prevent these type taxpayer money from being used to settle these types of harassment suits. And there's also uh, legislation that um, is out there that would prohibit these non-disclosure agreements so that if you are accused of, you know, improperly harassing somebody, that you're, particularly as a legislator, that your name is out there and people can see it and make a decision when it's time to vote for them. Right. So, um... I think we've seen some statements from House leaders about this. Uh, Frank Dermody, the House leader, said, you know, basically that he can't talk about it, but he's But he wishes he could. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you know, I I hate to say it this bluntly, but that doesn't sit well with a lot of people when they see that because, you know, this is a really big issue at this moment in time, and people don't like the idea of... You know, they view this as it's a cover-up, even though this is standard procedure in settling, you know, harassment-type claims. Particularly in government, people it, it, people have a very visceral reaction to it because there is taxpayer money that's kind of supporting this. And you are talking about public officials whose job it is to make laws. Um, and so people have a really bad reaction to, oh, I wish I could talk about it, but I just can't. 
Um, I think, you know, he has said um, that he supports legislation to the legislation that's out there to prohibit, you know, taxpayer funds from being used and, and again, to prohibit non-disclosure agreements. But, you know, it, it kind of falls a little bit on, on deaf ears. And I think that's not just the general public who's having that reaction, but watching the reaction from the House of Democrats has been very similar to that in some portions of it. Um, I think a lot of them seem surprised that these agreements were being you know, made, this money was being used this way. Like It seems like it wasn't something that was necessarily widely known. No. no. My understanding is that it was a very small number of people who knew. Um, I think a lot of the rank and file, and Leanne Kruger-Branicki in particular, yeah. put out a statement that basically said the women in the legislature deserve better than to learn about this in the newspaper, Um, which in this world is a very strong public rebuke of your leader's handling um, that you don't normally see because a lot of people don't like to openly criticize their Their supervisors, essentially. Sure. Um, So then, I mean, I suppose going forward, well, actually, we should say, so the Senate's also sort of been grappling with how to respond to this Mm -hmm. stuff. They circulated a memo saying that uh, they were upping their harassment policy, I guess. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Jay Costa said... Um, they're reviewing it. Yeah, yeah. Democratic mm-hmm. Leader, yeah. rather, Jay Costa said they're reviewing it. I think something to do with now uh, harassment complaints will go through their chief clerk's office and not through elected officials. Um, so, I mean, and that's also something, I mean, Dalen Leach's incidents, um, right. alleged incidents, were, they happened when he was in his campaign. Right. Like, there's nothing, the Senate doesn't have oversight there. Except for one that happened with a Senate staffer. Okay. Um, and I think that is what's prompting, and, and I, there seems to be some questions about how that was handled, because um, the woman in that case feels like she was discouraged from really um, taking it a step further. And there isn't, if you look at the Senate uh, sexual harassment policy, it, it is clear in the sense that it tells you, well, you have this option, you have a, another option, and you have option C. But there is no real sort of central clearinghouse outside of the, the caucuses and the political parties to really kind of give it an independent review. Yeah. And even beyond that, I mean, do you think that, you know, obviously people are going to try to say, okay, we're taking specific action to stop these things, but this does sort of bring the conversation out into the open, you know, doing stories like this, sort of investigating these incidents that, I mean, a decade ago probably would have been brushed off. Um, Do you think the culture can change in enough, like, without specific action? I th- yeah, right? I mean, I think the, the, the scrutiny itself, I, I think, gets people thinking about their actions more, and that's probably a good conversation to have. Um, I think the internal pressure coming from some of your colleagues probably has a lot of potential to create change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the thing that's going to be interesting to watch is that it's a heavily male-dominated legislature, so... Seeing how they act when these bills come up, I think, is going to be really indicative of what will or won't change. I mean, we know there was some sexual harassment training that was done recently, and we've kind of heard various things from people, some who thought it was great and really effective, others who thought perhaps people were not taking it seriously enough, um, which is something that realistically you could probably hear in any workplace, but that is particularly interesting in the Capitol. But beyond the Capitol, I think there is a national conversation going on as to what is sexual harassment? What constitutes sexual harassment? What standards should our public officials be held to? And I think that there are people who very firmly believe, and we heard from some of them after the Dale and Leach story ran, 
that, you know, inappropriate language and touching that doesn't involve, you know, body parts, private body parts, is not sexual harassment. And I think that there are a lot of women who would disagree with that definition. So, and that's yeah. something, too. I mean, I think I, I spoke to Leanne Kruger-Brannick, who's yeah. the sponsor of one of these pieces of legislation, who said, you know, there is no definition of harassment that right. we can use consistently in Harrisburg right. and mm-hmm. lots of places. Right. So, I mean, that seems like a question that's going to, people sure. are going to try to answer to some degree. And I think it's been sort of interesting, too. There are a lot of people who, if you talk to them in the Capitol and ask them, how does this process work when somebody has a complaint, they don't necessarily know the answer themselves, right. too. Yeah. So we've heard a lot of folks starting to ask around about that. Right. There is a very unique culture up here in that mm. once the legislature is done for the day, a lot of these folks go out at night to the restaurants and bars in Harrisburg. And same goes with the lobbying community, same goes mm-hmm. with a lot of their staffers. So you have, you know, this dynamic where outside of your actual work day and workplace, you're still seeing the same people and now you're around alcohol and now you're around, you know, it's everything's a little bit more, you know, laid back. They're away from their families. They're away from their families. Yeah. So how do you behave in that type of situation? Yeah, I think that's part of being a politician to some extent. Sure. You know, Mm -hmm. that happens to all of them. Um, And it's an interesting thing to know. So now going forward, you guys, you know, have done a lot of work. You've been working some long hours. It seems like there's a little bit more to come still. I mean, we're definitely working on different things and pursuing different things. I think when we're at a point when we feel like we've vetted things well enough to be confident in their accuracy and their fairness, I don't think there will be any question because you'll see yeah. something in the paper. <laughs> yeah. These, these stories take a while. Um, you can't just take something and put it into the paper. Um, Plus, you know, they're very uh, sensitive issues, and and having a victim speak to you about his or her experience is a a very emotional and and, and can be a very drawn-out process. Um, But like Liz said, you have to take that and and vet it extraordinarily carefully because you are talking about people's reputations and we are very, very, very cognizant of that when we do these types of stories. And that was something I wanted to ask about because when you do these and, you know, you know this better than I do, you know, people are going to be angry that a story like this was written and people are going to say that wasn't fair to me, you didn't vet this, this person's lying. Right. I mean, these are things you take great pains to make sure that they're not lies. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, And I think a lot of the things that you try and do are figure out, okay, which part of their story is something that somebody else would have witnessed or that would have been documented in some way or reported to someone in some way. And every chance that that something like that exists, you want to make sure you reach out to that person or see if that document happens to be a public record or something to that extent. So I guess the point for the listener is... When you see something like said in the newspaper, there's like a lot of report. It's like the tip of an iceberg where there's tons of reporting underneath that that went into it to vet it. Yes, I think that's very safe to say. Um, uh, So anything else you guys want to add on this? Anything uh, you think we missed in this whole conversation? I mean, I think we're willing to talk to anybody who feels like they have a story to tell, so don't hesitate to reach out. Um, yes, and, and you know, both Liz and I, when, when people do call us, we tell them, we explain to them, you know, the process that they have to go through if they want this story told. And it is difficult. It's difficult for 
the victims, too. I think sometimes there's a, a, a sense that, um, you know, it is just the accused who is, the, the burden is on them. But that's not true. The burden is also on the victim to, when they come to us, to, to be able to, to the extent that they can, verify their story. And when we do these things, too, you're not... I think a lot of people have the assumption that you're looking out for somebody who's going to say something bad about someone, but that's not the way we approach it. We want to reach everybody who's had some say or been touched by this event so that you get the full picture of, okay, yeah, this is the bad part, but here's maybe the other side of the story. And if you have an experience that's good or bad, if you were involved, like, we want to know the full spectrum. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much, that's the conversation I think I wanted to have this week. I think you guys have been doing some really interesting work, a lot of hard work on this. A beautiful topic to be focusing on right around Christmas. That's right. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah. Merry sexual harassment. Uh, <laughs> well, on that note, um, we'll be back. I think we'll be back next week. Maybe we'll take a week off. But uh, You deserve it. You yeah. do. Yeah. You we do. all deserve a week off. All right. I think that's it. Have a good holiday, everyone. Thanks, guys, for coming down. Thank you. Thanks for having us.